0: Thank you. i is for She took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless faith, this gift of love and righteousness. Bye.
1: me in your Bibles to Isaiah 55 as we continue our study of the gospel. I want to make a couple of points from Isaiah 55 before we go back to our study in Romans chapter 6. Why don't we pray before we begin this morning? Heavenly Father, I think of the, the words written by Luke as the disciples walked with your Son. It says that he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. That is my prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In Isaiah chapter 55, there are a couple of verses that if you have read your Bible a few times growing up in the church, you're probably familiar with. We're going to expand on them a little bit this morning. Um, Try to place Christ... Um, more correctly in his position. In Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9 are familiar verses. That is going to be our starting place this morning. Isaiah writes, Jesus is speaking through the pen of Isaiah as he says through him, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So that's our starting point this morning. Jesus is saying through Isaiah that the difference between your capacity and your thoughts and your actions and mine is more than the difference between the heavens and the earth. So I want us to take a, a minute, first of all, if I ask the question, where did science come from? It came from God. So I want us to think scientifically about the statement that Jesus has just made through the prophet Isaiah 740 years before he would come to be born in Bethlehem. Paul, the apostle, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 2, says that there was a point, and this point would be between his salvation and his ministry of a missionary launching in Acts chapter 13, where he is caught up to heaven. And he says, I was caught up to the third heaven. So the Bible defines heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God. So if you walked outside this morning, it's a sunny day, and you see the clouds and the atmosphere around us, maybe up as high as you could breathe oxygen, that's heaven number one, according to the Bible. The second heaven is when we see at night, more clearly, the stars, the moon, the planets, the, the galaxies, maybe through the Hubble telescope, that's the second heaven's. The third heavens is beyond that. We don't know how far beyond that. We have no technology, no reasoning that can go beyond that. We can't even go through the first or the second heaven all the way till we exhaust it. So Jesus says that his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. From the heavens to us, it's significantly greater than that. So I want us to think about the second heaven a little bit this morning to magnify what he is saying here, what he says other places in Isaiah and the Psalms and in Job. We walk outside at night and we look into the Milky Way galaxy. In the Milky Way galaxy, there are between 200 and 400 billion stars in this galaxy. The galaxy expands, and, and if you walk outside, you need to go get away. The, the, the clearest that I ever saw this was on a, an island called Mission Point, Belize, where they had no electricity, and Terry and I were walking along the Caribbean Sea with no light except the stars, and no light would seem to have been a false statement. It seemed as if God brought the stars down to us, I would say that I literally saw four times as many stars that night as I have ever seen. So of the maybe 300 billion stars, I probably saw a thousand stars that night. When we think about the vastness of what Jesus is saying here, the Milky Way galaxy is about six million trillion miles in expanse. We are a part of a universe that has 125 billion galaxies. If we narrow it down, we, we, we'll we'll take a star as a starting point. Jesus took Abraham out and said, look up at the stars and count them if you can. So if I counted them that night and I saw a thousand out of 300 billion, that means that there's probably millions and millions and millions of stars between each star that I can see. The average distance, according to studies through the Hubble telescope, the average distance from the star to the closest star is 30 trillion miles. If we traveled in the space shuttle, from a star to the nearest star, we would be traveling at 18,000 miles an hour. That's five miles per second. How long do you think it would take to travel from star to star? Guess. Any guesses? Two hundred thousand years to travel from one star to the closest star of the Milky Way galaxy, of which there are 300 billion stars, of which it is one of 125 billion galaxies in our universe, of which science says there is an infinite amount of universes. So the things that we attempt to count... 30 trillion miles apart, 300 billion stars, and one of 125 billion galaxies in an infinite amount of universes. That's our God. So there was a day on the fourth day of creation where he spoke that into existence. Far beyond any calculations is the stars in our galaxy, which is a very small part of a universe, which is a very small part of the universes, is is a dot called Earth. Jesus is the one who spoke that into existence. Jesus is saying here that that's a dim picture of the difference between your ways and my ways and between your thoughts and my thoughts. So now it becomes important that, okay, that statement is true. What is Jesus talking about? What is he specifically teaching? We know that in Isaiah 52, it's talking about the death of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 is the chapter that describes the death of Jesus more extensively than any place in the Bible. Isaiah 54, guess what? He's still talking about Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. He's preaching the gospel in Isaiah chapter 55. He's not just talking about science. So if we back up in our Bibles to verse 6, this is the gospel that he is talking about. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts, go back into verse 7. Let the wicked forsake their ways and their unrighteous, the unrighteous their thoughts. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways, your sinful ways, anything close to my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than yours, he is giving us a moral picture. When he says, think about the galaxies, think about the universes, think about the first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven, and I want you to understand that the difference between the righteousness of man and the righteousness of Jesus Christ cannot be measured. It's not a good and a bad. It's a perfect and no measure. And he says in this, if you will turn to God and repent, he will have mercy on you. And if you come to him to follow him and to serve him, then he will pardon you. That's the perfect description of what happens when we believe in Jesus Christ. It is never as if our sins didn't exist. It is as if they no longer are considered. When a president pardons someone at the end of his term, they have to fill out a paper that says, I was guilty of this crime, and I am now being pardoned. Jesus is saying in the gospel that I am so far separated from you, but I want you to know, if you will turn to me, serve me, and obey me, we will come together in perfect union. Turn to Romans chapter six, as we go to what Isaiah is talking about, and now look into the explanation of the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at the first six verses. Planned to have bitten off more, but there's so much here, and there's some uh, some critical theological points that are so important to the United States of America in particular that we're not going to hurry through this. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. If you were here last week, we've been talking about the extent of grace that the gospel we read about in Romans chapter 5, the obedience of Christ that we just read in Isaiah is so far beyond anything that, that we can compare beyond the galaxies, beyond the third heaven. If the universes are infinite, Science is forced to use a word that is about God, infinite. But that's what they attach to the universes. Because there is no end that we can recognize. And there is no end to our God that we can recognize. So Paul is referring to this grace, this transfer in Romans chapter 5 of grace to our account. Obedience leads us to service to Christ so that our sins can go on his account. What shall we say then in response to all of this grace? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Remember we read last week in Romans chapter 5, whenever sin increases, grace increases more. John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, look, there's Jesus full of grace and truth. So he says, though the law came through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. It is inexhaustible. The grace that he apportions to a believer leaves no less grace behind. It is inexhaustible. He is full of grace and truth always. We talked about last week, he puts grace in us that, yes, includes our salvation, but the grace exceeds The act of obedience, if we obey him every time for the rest of our life, it far exceeds that. So when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, he's saying, wherever I'm going, the grace is already gone. It's waiting for me. It exceeds what I will need. Your grace is sufficient, he will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Shall we go on sinning then, Paul says. So grace looks even greater. Verse 2. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Paul's response to the question, well, if if grace looks even greater when I sin more, how about if I sin more? Paul says, by no means. We have died to sin. Who we are before we repent and make jesus our master dies it makes no sense for that person to have even the access to be the sinner that they were before so in romans chapter eight if you will turn there there is no chapter to my knowledge that mentions the holy spirit more than romans chapter eight there's We're going to read from in the middle of a stretch where the Holy Spirit is mentioned 16 times in 16 verses. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit forever. And it also guarantees everything that goes on before that moment. There is no verse in the Bible that describes any possible way that a person can lose the Holy Spirit. That's not a problem. That's true. What is problem? That in this world, and particularly in the United States of America, there are hundreds of ways to get the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says there's one. So if you have a hundred ideas, they can all be wrong, but only one can be true. So we're going to look at the truth about the Holy Spirit today. The truth is, as Paul is going to explain now, if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit... You are different. So there is a process of sanctification where I grow to be more different. I grow to be more like him. I grow in the knowledge of him and I grow to make changes and I grow to make changes. But if changes aren't happening, Paul is going to explain here, then you don't have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes immediately to anyone who becomes a child of God. We'll pick it up in verse 8. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So there is nothing a person outside of Christ can do in any way that pleases or satisfies God. Verse 9. You, however, he only writes to professing believers in all of his letters. You, born-again Christian, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. And then he asks an important question because he writes to who? He writes to professing believers. I believe in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm writing to you. And then he says here, you're not in the realm of the flesh if you have the Spirit, if indeed. So he's going to define throughout many things we look at, the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul are going to tell a person in the world today, how can you know that you're a Christian? Paul tells us that in all of his letters, probably in every chapter that he writes. So we read on verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. I believe in God, James says, that's great. So do the demons. John chapter 2, many people believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in them because he knew the truth about them. We talked about this extensively last week. Believing that Jesus died doesn't save you. Believing that he paid for your sins doesn't save you. Believing that he rose from the dead doesn't save you. Paul says, and he's going to explain throughout all of these verses today, that if you are a Christian, the Spirit of God lives in you, and you do what he says. That's the proof. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Very simple. I follow Jesus, I don't know about this Holy Spirit thing. Well, you could be uninformed. You could not know that. But the theological truth is, if you follow Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you have Christ. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. If you don't have Christ, you don't have the Spirit, you don't have the Father. If you have Christ, you have all three. Paul will explain that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. Paul teaches this over and over again, that if you do follow Christ, then you do have the Spirit. If you do have the Spirit, you are born again. If you are born again, you will have an immortal, perfect body one day, just like Christ. And he is explaining exactly what he's talking about in chapter 6 in these verses. Verse 11, And if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life, eternal life, immortal life, to your mortal bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, because of his Spirit who lives in you. Verse 12, Therefore, brothers and sisters, We have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live if by the spirit you do that. If you put to death, if 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 you've been crucified with Christ, if as the kids sing in kids' club, the things I used to do, don't do them anymore. If that's true for you, it is the spirit putting to death the the old self, the, the carnal nature that is the flesh that he is talking about here. Verse 14, for those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. Simple question. Do you live your day in obedience to the spirit of God? What does that mean? The sword of the Spirit is the Bible. If the Spirit speaks to you, it will be the Bible. If the Bible tells you what to do and you do it, it's a simple equation. You live by the Spirit of God. If you live, he told us a couple of verses earlier, by what do I want to do today? What will satisfy me today? He says very simply, you will die. It is cut and dry, it is black and white. Turn to John chapter 12 as Jesus is talking about this right before the cross. John chapter 12. I don't know if there is a chapter that, or that it's even important that there is a chapter with Jesus in it that has more theological truth than John chapter 12. We're going to look at a little bit of it. Verse 24. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servants will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Putting this in a short statement, if you serve Christ, the Father honors you. He recognizes you. He is your Abba. He is your daddy. Jesus says, if you follow me, you must serve me and you must be where I am. It is not complicated. The things in the next week that God puts on your schedule, if you live by the spirit, those are the things that you respond to. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 If the Spirit has permission to do what God wants me to do, I will serve others, which is actually serving Jesus. And Jesus is saying here that unless the seed dies, crucified with Christ, to begin with, carnal flesh doesn't exist in its identity anymore. Born again, spirit indwelt, still with free will, but can live by the Spirit now, whereas we read earlier in Romans 6, without it, you can't please God. You can't do good enough to please God. The only thing that pleases God is when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to make you like the Son of God and you love others and you serve others turn to first john towards the end of your bible a little bit before revelation first john chapter 2 John is always writing theologically purposeful you we say well every book in the bible is and that's a true statement He writes, as Dave talked about in Sunday school this morning, he writes his gospel long after Matthew, Mark, and Luke because he has so much more insight theologically than he did when he was an apostle. When he writes 1 John, 1 John is known as the I know book. I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm born again. I know that I'm going to heaven. I know that eternity is already established. And he is telling us how to know. He is explaining, this is how you know. When you believe that something is true, you have an opportunity to choose to obey it. When you obey it, then you establish that you believe in it and not just that it is true. So he explains this all throughout 1 John. We'll just look at a few verses. Chapter 2 and verse 1. My dear children, I write this, to you so that you will not sin. What an opening statement to a chapter. Let me know. Let me let you know. I'm writing this so that you won't sin. He will explain like Paul that you have the power to do this and that it's your identity in Christ that you avoid sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Paul will explain when we get in Romans chapter 7 that the difference between a lost person who sins and a saved person who sins is the identity, the lordship. A lost person wakes up without stress. What do I want? They go to sleep. What do I want? The Spirit living in a person born again knows what God wants and wrestles with it. If we don't wrestle and we do what the Spirit wants, our identity becomes clear. Verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, us as believers, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Romans 5.18, 1 Timothy 4.10, we looked at this last week, that all sin caused by Adam was wiped out at the cross. So John is saying the same thing here. He is the atoning sacrifice for believers and for the sins of the whole world. There will not be a conceived human being whose sins are not paid for. So in both categories, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. Verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Jesus says this repeatedly. John writes this repeatedly. Paul writes this repeatedly. This is the gospel. It's the unheard gospel. I know I'm going to heaven. How do you know? I prayed a prayer. I was at a revival meeting. I go to this church. I was baptized. I was confirmed. I did this. I did that. We know that we belong to him if we obey his commands. How do you know you're going to heaven? I do what he says, period. Well, I do what he says, and he's my Lord, but I still have this uncomfortable feeling. Look what it says. Believe what it says. If your life is lived in obedience to the commands of God's word, you can say, I know. Reading on, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Grace and truth are a package that Jesus is full of. When a person would come to Jesus in the Gospels and say, I believe in you. You are sent from God. You are the Messiah. Okay, lay down your life. Pick up your cross and follow me. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. John is saying here that when a person says, it's true. I believe it. I know it. I'm just not into all of those church things. Or I'm just not into reading my Bible. Or I'm just not into what does God have for me today. John, not Jim. John, no, I'm just kidding. John, not Jim says you're a liar to anyone who says that i believe in god i'm just not into all of that stuff john says here you're a liar verse five but if anyone obeys his word love for god is truly made complete in them this is how we know we are in him whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. James says it this way, can claiming to be saved save you? Answer, no. Paul says in Titus chapter 1, these people claim to be saved, but they live a different way. And Paul, not Jim, goes on to say, They are detestable and unfit for doing anything good. John is saying here, do you want to know that you're a Christian? Obey God's word. And you can say, I know. A person can can be pretty unaware doctrinally about a lot of things and simply say, what Jesus says is my instructions. And I assure you that they are born again, born of God. Turn to chapter 3 as we have similar language as John continues on this. He tells us at the end of chapter 2 not to love the world or anything in it. If we do, the love of God is not in us. Is there a part of the world you're hanging on to? Chapter 3 and verse 1, he is saying all the same things here, the glorified, amazing promises of God. Verses 1 and 2. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God? And that is what we are! Exclamation point. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now, in this life, we are children of God. But what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know, why? Because we obey his commands, that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then he says, all, who's that? Everyone who says they're a Christian, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. We are sanctified, set apart, and purified when the word of God transforms our lives into obedience. So Jesus, in the garden that night that he was betrayed and would be crucified, John 17, 17, he says, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 say, May the God of truth... Sanctify you through and through your whole spirit, soul, and body. And then he says, the one who promised it is faithful. He'll do it every time. And John says here that everyone who has the truth of salvation and the truth of a future body like Christ purifies themselves. So in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 Somehow God knows all of this before creation. He knows all the people before they exist, and he says you were chosen in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. We are chosen to be holy, blameless, and pure. John says everyone that says yes to Jesus that God accepts, purifies themselves let's read on verse 4 everyone who sins breaks the law in fact sin is lawlessness but you know that he appeared so that he might take away sins we've been reading this throughout the verses that we have died to sin Jesus doesn't come to make us better he doesn't come to make us sin less he comes to take sin away And that's what John is saying here, the purification that he is talking about. He came, verse 5, he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. In him, the one we are entering, there is no sin. Verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin sin has either seen Him or known Him. Lost their salvation? No. John is making this crystal clear. I prayed a prayer. I've been going to church my whole life. I, I do these things. I go to church. Sometimes I do this. Sometimes I believe in Jesus with all my heart. Earlier, John says, you're a liar. Here, he is saying that in verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. He's going to tell us in a couple of verses that it's actually theologically impossible for a person to be saved and not follow Christ. In other words, it almost seems as if, if you tried to do that, I will give God some of my life. I will obey him in some of the ways. John is going to explain in a couple of verses why that that actually can't happen. It's theologically impossible. Verse 7, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Question, Jim, has he destroyed the devil's work in your life? Now listen to what he says in verse 9 of chapter 3. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Why, John? Because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. We don't find the word carnal in the Bible. We have an understanding that Christians can sin. What John is saying here, because the seed of God When we go to Romans chapter 4, it's not seeds, Paul says, it's seed. When the seed of God is put in a person, 2 Peter chapter 1, the opening verses there is the seed of God. Within this seed is the Holy Spirit, grace for an entire lifetime, the divine nature of God, 2 Peter 1, is in that seed. When you see a person who is struggling to obey Christ and they never stop struggling, John says, they never knew him. Verse 6. They didn't even know him to begin with. 1 John 3.6 1 John 3.9 nine if you think there's a possibility that they're just struggling their whole life to do the things God is calling them to do, John says, it's impossible. You cannot have the endowment of God in a human being and life goes on. It's impossible theologically. A person who is indwelt, for example, by the Holy Spirit cannot be indwelt by a demon. If a person is doing things of the world comfortably, seemingly endlessly, John says it's impossible, A, for them to know that they're a Christian, and B, because they're not. They can't be. If God came down and moved into a house in Mendota, how could you think that house would be the same? If God comes down from heaven with his divine nature and his Holy Spirit and he moves in to take residency and the person says, I'm a believer, but I don't know about all that Christianity stuff, John says, you better take them back to the gospel because if God lives there, God is either obeyed or he's dealing with that person. So these are strong words by the Apostle John who says all through the Gospel of John, here's how you're born again. All through 1 John, here's how you know. You do what he says. You obey his commands. John says, you know. Let's go back to Romans chapter 6. Understand, we are talking about the gospel in 1 John. We are talking about the gospel in all the verses that we are looking at. We are reading from the, the two individuals who write about the gospel exclusively, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John. In Romans chapter 6, we pick it up in verse 3. There's a lot we can do from here, but we're going to primarily make a, an important statement theologically Verse 3 of Romans chapter 6. Or don't you know that all who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is that seed dying that Jesus says you have to die first or you just remain a single seed. Or don't you know that all those who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. Paul and John are explaining how you can know that. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. If the devil made you do it, which I don't think that that's almost ever true, but if he did, you can't be saved. We put to death the body of sin to associate with the death of jesus christ i died to who i was i live for you as soon as my death is connected to his death everything is guaranteed everything that follows is guaranteed divine nature divine seed holy spirit forever god with me everywhere i go Eternity in heaven, a glorified body, a rich inheritance that we couldn't possibly describe. If you think talking about the stars is amazing, imagine how much the heaven that we are awaiting exceeds the galaxies and the universe as we think about those things. Paul is saying here that we first have to be baptized into Christ. And I think in the culture that we live in, This becomes critical. Infant baptism is associated with Romans 6. It cannot be. Paul is speaking nothing about water baptism in Romans chapter 6. When we are baptized into Christ Jesus, it is when we confess him as our Lord to follow him with our life and we believe that God raised him from the dead, baptized into Christ Jesus. So it's, it's confusing in America where, you know, baptism, it must be talking about this or it means that or it means this. Paul is talking about being born of the spirit of God. It becomes critical for us to know exactly I've been to baptisms um, where they use these verses and you cannot do it. It is the reason you're being baptized rather than baptism. And we need to be able to look into this and pay attention to it today so that we can explain it in a culture that believes baptism helps you into heaven. Water baptism. So we have to define the difference. So let's go first of all to John chapter 3. We're going to lean into John and Paul pretty hard today. Not extensively, but specifically. In John chapter 3, he is explaining to Nicodemus, who is a member of the Jewish ruling council, who has been touched, he's been pricked in the heart by Jesus Christ, that he's not some rebel. He is not some self-glorifier. Nicodemus has thoughts here that it's the Messiah. So he comes to him at night and he sneaks around so the other Pharisees can't see him. And he comes up and he starts to question him. And he, and he starts out with, Rabbi, we know that you are from God and that you represent God. And, and Jesus interrupts him and says, you have to be born again. Nicodemus says, how can I go back into my mother's womb? I can't be born again. You need to be born of the Spirit. And that's the baptism into Christ that John is explaining. Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus in verse 3 of John chapter 5. Actually, verse 5. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and Spirit. So first of all, that verse right there is used to say that when you baptize a baby, they are born of the Spirit. Jesus isn't linking them, he's separating them. You must be born of the water. What happens, women, shortly before birth? Your water breaks. And you must be born of the Spirit. John chapter 1 and verse 12. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are given the right to be the children of God. It is believing in, and not just that, Jesus Christ, that causes us to be born again. Nicodemus correctly says, born again. Do I have to go back into my mother's womb? How am I going to do that? He says, no, you need to be born and born again by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, a.k.a. water. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born. Again, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul is showing us how to be baptized into Jesus Christ. Baptismo, the Greek word that means to immerse. We are to be immersed into Christ. When people are baptized with water, they are immersed into the water to show that they have been immersed into Christ. That is the purpose of baptism in water. So in Ephesians chapter 1, he is writing to the church in Ephesus, to believers there, when in verse 13, he, he speaks to Gentiles. He says in verse 13, And you also were included where? In Christ. How, Paul? When you heard the message of truth, you must confess Him as Lord, and you must believe in His resurrection. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal who is the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory to be baptized into Christ is to hear the gospel Romans ten seventeen. faith comes from hearing I now believe that it's true when I believe in the truth I now believe in the truth. And Paul says, as soon as that happens, you are marked in Christ, sealed in there by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. And everything after that, Paul says, is guaranteed. What if I don't get water baptized? Well, then you didn't obey Christ in that way. But what about all the th- It's already guaranteed. You're already in Christ. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 17, Christ Jesus did not send me to baptize, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. People in Corinth are saying, I'm good because Paul baptized me. Others are saying, I'm on the right track because Apollos baptized me. Paul says, no, 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 no. Baptism doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Turn to John chapter 7. I forgot to go there. It's important. John chapter 7, Jesus is prophesying what Paul is writing there about 27 years later. In John chapter 7, Jesus is explaining theologically that unless he dies, the Spirit can't come. If he dies and you believe in him, the Spirit will come in you. Exactly what Paul just explained to us, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let everyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. In real time, the, apostles, the disciples all went, Huh, I wonder what that means. John's writing this 47 years later. He knows now. So he puts in his gospel, verse 39, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus stands up and says, Whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink, and streams of living water will flow from within you. People like Martha and Mary probably thought, I know what he means. John didn't. He has told them multiple times. He tells them in John 14, 15, and 16, look, I am going away, but I'm sending the Spirit. And they're like, I don't understand. Jesus explains it here. John writes his Gospel later, so when we read the Gospel of John, we can know. When you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Nothing to do with water baptism. John the Baptist says of Jesus, he says, I, John the Baptist, baptize you with water. When Jesus comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will put you in him by the Holy Spirit. The person who takes you from lost to regenerated is the Holy Spirit. So we believe in him. No, we believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit regenerates us. Turn back to Ephesians in chapter 4. We're going to read a lot of verses, so I won't stop very much. I want to begin in Ephesians 4. We could look. We won't in the interest of time where he talks about in in verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. In that order, confess him as Lord. Put your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, then be baptized. That's always the order, and only Paul gives us the theological order in that way. We're going to drop down in chapter 4 to verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. He's talking about a sinful life. When you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Understand what he is saying in verse 20. When he went to Ephesus in Acts chapter 18 for the first time, and he stood on the street corners, and he went to the synagogue, and he went to everywhere where people would listen, and he told them about Jesus Christ. Everything, when we read from verse 20 to the end of the chapter, he preached. So he says in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders, many years later, he says, I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I have not failed to, to preach the whole will of God to you. The will of God, Romans 1, 5, is to call Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. Ephesians 1, 4, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Ephesians 2, 10, to do the good works that he planned in advance for us to do. That all begins with repentance, which is dying to who I was. So as we read on here, let's understand that this is what he told them the day that he met them, verse 22, You were, back then, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body, the body of Christ. Verse 26, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Do something useful with your own hands that you may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in Christ God forgave you. Imagine coming into this middle of a sermon with what we understand today, thinking, oh, this must be a group of Christians that have been saved for a long time and he's telling them how to live. Paul is saying here, remember the first time I met you and I told you all this? That's the same thing John the Baptist said. Repent, follow him, and do good. All of this, our attitude towards outsiders, our attitude towards insiders, our relationship to anger and malice and stealing and all of these things, Paul says, I taught you from the start that if you follow him, he expects this. Created to be like God from the beginning. So these people didn't go to church in Ephesus for years and just have a casual relationship to, maybe I'll be involved in there, maybe I'll be involved in there. These people were told from the beginning, Paul was in Ephesus longer than any place on earth when he was a minister for three and a half years. And then John the Apostle was their pastor. Then Timothy is their pastor. So this church was told all of this. You want to accept Jesus Christ? Die to yourself. Be made new in the attitude of your mind, stop sinning, obey Jesus. Clear from the beginning. It would have been, a lot of people said, that's not for me, but at least the decision would be clear. The people that said, I accept, would have immediately been visibly changed in how they live. Turn to Titus chapter 3 as we look at the regenerator of the Holy Spirit. We never worship the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit becomes active when we serve the Son. In Titus chapter 3, we pick it up in verse 4. We could go all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 4. The kindness of God leads us to repentance, Romans 2, 4. That kindness he talks about here, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we have done. I don't bring a list. I don't have accomplishments. I haven't done anything that he would save me, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, born again, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And then we'll take the gospel through verse 8. To see the same thing we just read in Ephesians. Whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified. Romans chapter 5, 1 and 2. By his grace. We might become heirs. Having a, the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want to stress, want you to stress these things. So that if you understand all of this so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. That's the gospel according to Paul. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 10, where we will see a clear distinction between water baptism and the baptism of Romans 6, being crucified with Christ, having heard the gospel, I'm marked in Christ, immersed, baptized into him, sealed into him by the Holy Spirit. The, the picture of that then is water baptism. So there are, the majority of churches teach that that born again begins when, when a baby is baptized or when anyone is baptized. I would say in my history of baptizing people that most people, this is a, a sad testimony, that I have baptized are not even involved in the church today. And we're talking about a believer's baptism, a person who says, I, I'm going to follow Christ with my life, I've trusted in him fully, I'm going to obey him with my life, but they have subconsciously, boy, if I just get this water thing, it'll be good. Life will be easier. I'll be more faithful. The water does nothing. The obedience to baptism obeys a direct command that says, I've already decided that he's my master. I'm already living for him. I've already chosen to die to myself and follow him. I want to be baptized so that people know what I believe. That's the biblical picture, and we see that picture. We have teachers in church that there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit, there's a baptism of Jesus, there's a baptism, there's only one water baptism, and there's only one spiritual baptism. Spiritual baptism is, I follow Jesus. Water baptism is, I want you to know that I follow Jesus. The second, whenever the water comes, is no dispensing of grace. It is a testimony to the grace already dispensed. So in Acts chapter 10, Peter is one of the people who needed to learn this. So, so Peter is sent to a Gentile. It is clear from Acts chapter 10, he would not have done this on his own. He did not think that Gentiles could receive the Holy Spirit. He did not believe that they could be born again like him. So Jesus gives him a vision of unclean foods before the cross and says eat. And he does that to give him a picture that Gentiles are accepted just as the same as Jews through belief in Jesus Christ. So we're late in this conversation. I would encourage you to read all of chapter 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 42. Speaking the gospel to Cornelius and probably a couple hundred of his servants, Peter says, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one, Jesus Christ, whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. John chapter 5, verse 43. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. So understand what has happened here. Cornelius is a Gentile. I believe in you, God. I worship you every day. I'm helping the Jews in my community because I know that they're your people. What else do I do? And he sees a vision of Peter. And the vision says, send some servants to get Peter and bring him to you. He doesn't know how to be saved. There's no Gentiles around him that have heard any of this. So Peter sees a vision, go to Cornelius. He goes there and he takes them through the history of God. He is now to the point where God has told me to preach to you that Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. And that everyone who believes in him, as the prophets testify, will have life. Look at the next verse, verse 44. While he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. I have witnessed this, as best I can understand, Um, when we were at, at Super 8, Um, if, if I perceived correctly, there was no resistance to the truth. Yes, I acknowledge that. That's true. That person didn't, we prayed a prayer. They didn't need to pray a prayer. As soon as they realize, the prayer is to make it clear that he did this for me, I confess him as my Lord I believe in him. The Holy Spirit indwells them. Peter is preaching and he's probably thinking, you know, I'm doing the best I can. I'm letting the Holy Spirit lead me. And he doesn't realize they're already saved. They already believe in the one who judges the living and the dead. They already believe everything the prophets have written that they've never read. They're believing what Peter is saying They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And 100% of the time that this happens in the book of Acts, Jews are there to witness it, verse 45. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. We're not going to preach on speaking in tongues today, but 100% of the time in the Bible when speaking in tongues happen, it is when people get saved to be a testimony that a new people group has been reached by Jesus Christ. Now look what Peter does. Then Peter said, verse 47, surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized with water. They already have the Holy Spirit. They have received the Holy Spirit, Peter says, as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, not into Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. A perfect picture of they hear the truth, they believe it, the Spirit comes, and then they get baptized. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of heaven that comes to earth when a person chooses to obey your son. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.